The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy, sitting in this week for Hugh, who's currently on his annual nude hiking holiday in a thankfully remote corner of the Bavarian Alps. It's day 47, or so it seems, of the story that has gripped the media, politics and, I think it's fair to say, the public. It's the secret payments made by RTE to its top-earning star, Ryan Tuberty. The station has been in turmoil for the past week as management and the broadcaster's board struggle with the fallout from the revelations. Staff at RTE are seething, while the public anger is audible on the station's own shows. In Leinster House and government buildings, the awareness that they were lied to by RTE over a period of years, at the same time while the station's leaders were publicly badgering them for more money, is leading to a demand for accountability. I'm speaking a few hours before RTE executives and board members appear at the Oireachtas Media Committee. The first of two appearances this week before Oireachtas committees, the second coming tomorrow when they face the powerful Public Accounts Committee. So where are we now with this scandal? What do we know? Where is it going? And what will it mean for the often fraught relationship between RTE and the government and between RTE and politics more generally? I'm joined by our Public Affairs Editor, Arthur Beasley, and by Professor Jane Souter, late of the Irish Times, nowadays from the Institute for the Future of Media at DCU. Thank you both for coming in. Arthur, you've been following this story pretty closely. Where are we now? Well, uh, we await this meeting today of the Committee on Arts and Media. That's going to go on for three hours at least. question remains as to whether the committee members will be able to extract from the RTE people who will be in attendance, the kind of answers that still remain almost one week into this. We're now on day seven. It's been the lead story. It's pretty much it every, every single story, every single newspaper, every single news bulletin on every station for seven days. I mean, I can't recall and it, anything and, like that. And it's difficult to imagine that it won't be the lead story tomorrow after this committee today and that it won't be the lead story on Friday after the Public Accounts Committee. And despite all the opportunities to explain 
how it was that a public institution managed to convey very misleading information about its star presenter year after year after year. We still don't know how that happened and why it happened. I suppose, Jane, there's two points just coming out of what Arthur says there. There is this confusion about how, how it happened, who knew about it, what was the means by which uh, it, it was done, etc., cetera, uh, et cetera. And all that, I guess, we could dig into uh, shortly over the next while and, you know, we'll be grist to the mill uh, in, in, the, uh, in the committee today and again uh, tomorrow. But it seems to me that the big thing here is that RTE were engaged in an attempt to deceive. That's what all this was about. And the intent was to deceive the public, the Oireachtas, other people in RTE maybe, I don't know, uh, about the level of his the level of his pay. That's why all this Farago was uh, was constructed. It was because they wanted to pay him more than they were ready to admit in his top line salary. Yeah, no, but that's really serious, though, isn't it? That, that's really serious. So, so what it means is that fundamentally, anybody who had any level of knowledge about this realized that there was some willingness to pull the wool over the eyes of the, the minister, of the department, of the politicians in the Oireachtas Committee, of uh, ordinary staff in RTE and of the, of the licence payers. So the only reason you would even think about going to um, a commercial relationship and trying to put that in, like the statement said that there was pushback. Well, who pushbacked? Which one of those people who were mentioned pushed back? And so you wonder, well, you know, where where does that actually end? How can those people who were engaging in this be the people who are going to be trying to rebuild trust in the institution? You know, I think that's a question that a lot of those who were deceived on the committee and in the department and the minister and everybody else are going to have to ask themselves. Arthur, this statement that was issued by uh, RTE, uh, last night, we learned some things uh, from it, but 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 we didn't learn lots of other things. And the political reaction to it, and the reaction from staff and RTE, uh, etc., wasn't favourable. Was it a bit of an own goal? I wonder. Well, I mean, there have been a, a succession of statements, and uh, you could say a succession of mistakes as well. The 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 origin. Uh, of this entire affair was the statement that was issued on Thursday when RTE said, look, at, we've been paying Ryan Tuberty more than um, more than we said he, he has been paid. That statement didn't say that D Forbes, the now former Director General, had been suspended the day before, on Wednesday. We now learn from the statement that came out last night that D Forbes is being blamed for this entire affair. And that raises questions as to why they didn't declare last Thursday that she had been suspended, right? The statement says that she was the only person in possession of all the facts. Her position was that she didn't act alone. The statement says there were others in the RTE executive who knew of elements of the arrangements, some of them who had possession of the 
tripartite agreement as has been described between Ryan Tuberty, RTE and Renault. But they're still saying D Forbes was the only person. And that has to be that has to be interrogated. She's not going to be there today. She, she has, has said she has said she is unwell for health yeah. reasons. For health reasons, but she, didn't she also say last week that this was making her unwell? She did, she, and she said that this is having an impact on her health, yeah. uh, serious and ongoing. Right. So uh, it, it it seems to me that the the committee uh, is not going to compel her to appear. Well, um, not but there's going to be a, sick, no, yeah, sick but, but it, doctor, well, I suppose. Well, that, but that's I mean, it, that's it. So, but it but before the committee today and again tomorrow you have the most senior people in the organisation as it is. And they're going to have to answer the questions. It's interesting. Uh, not I, all of them. Not all no, of them. Exactly. Well, because well, some well, of like, the people... It's actually interesting, the ones who aren't going to be there. Okay, well, sure, but, no, but, you have, but you have the chairwoman of the board and you have the interim deputy director general who essentially is the person in the driving seat on the executive of RTE, right? So they... But also those people, by their own... Mm account knew absolutely nothing uh, about this. So one wonders what they're going to say to the committee, whereas other people in senior executive roles and remain in senior executive uh, roles who were identified in the RTE statement last night, such as Jim Jennings, are not on the list today. And Jim Jennings, and and one of the things about this, uh, the RTE statement last night, is that it kept using titles rather than names. And I found myself to having to go, oh, who's the director of strategy again? And who's the director of blah, blah, blah uh, again? And, and you know, you'd wonder, is it you'd all wonder about why pl- they were doing that. Yeah. But, is but, it all about plausible deniability? Like, is this really... Is that what it looks like to you? That's what it looks like to me. You know what I mean? That, you know, let's, the, the one person who's obviously spent less time in a role on the board is the outgoing director general. So, you know, she's pushed under the bus and then there's plausible deniability for other people. And I thought it was notable that it was all about written, you know, they didn't get written confirmation of this or that. But what sort of verbal confirmation was there? What sort of conversations were there? You know, what sort of telephone calls were there? You know, I do, and so I just think it's interesting who isn't there as much as who is there. And I think that the way the statement last night was worded um, is actually a really good guide as to where the question should go. Because you can see, well, we can stand over this, but then you look at what the gap is and go, well, that's clearly where the open questions are. You know, so I, I thought the the statement last night was, is actually, ironically, a, probably quite a good guide for people in the Erectus Committee today and later in the week. And you, you also have the fact that, uh, and this goes back to, uh, reporting only a few days ago, which now seems like uh, eons ago in this this entire business, where it, it turns out that the remuneration committee of the RTE board apparently had no oversight over top presenter pay, even though but the they, top presenters were the high... But they had permission to. Yes, they had permission to, but they so didn't, they didn't, didn't exercise again, that permission. Again, it's more not asking questions. Yeah. So the question is, so the previous board and chair of the remuneration committee, did she ask her oversight of it and was it denied and if so by who or did she not ask for it and if so why did she not ask for it because it's there in black and white that she has the right to ask for it and we, and an we know and, 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 and we know from the 2020 annual report of RTE that T Forbes attended eight board meetings of that body in 2020 
just, just big year. explain to people just the, 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 so the role the exec- of the board okay, and the so executive. The, so there's the executive board, which is the, the, the people, people who, who, charge, run the who, who run the programs, who run the programs, who are in charge of the programs. This, yeah. That, yeah. Okay. And then you have the board, which is government appointed, right? Which is in charge of making sure that everything is in order in the organization, right? And that's a it has big responsibilities because this is a big institution and it's all gone wrong now and we see now the consequences of what happens when it all goes wrong. But the Director General sat on the board. She was at the eight meetings, all eight meetings of the board in 2020. A big issue on her agenda that year was the renegotiation of Ryan Tuberty's contract. That renegotiation led to this agreement with Renault. And the board's position is that they knew nothing about it. The question is, was Dee Forbes asked about this at the board? What did she say if she was asked that left the board in the dark? And if she wasn't asked, what were the board doing? We also know that the Remuneration Committee, which to which it was open to interrogate presenter pay, didn't even meet in 2020. There seems to be an extraordinary culture of not asking questions at... It's very ironic the given the organisation that it's overseeing, which is about board, asking questions. Both on the board and the executive, there's a whole series of, you know, some people who had partial knowledge of this, according to the report that we were furnished with last night, people who had partial knowledge of this but never asked about it. The board never asked about it, as Arthur says. The remuneration committee never, uh, never, never asked met. about it. Never but, even met in 2020. What, what can possibly explain that? Because it seems to me, if you're not asking questions, it's because you're afraid of the answer you might get. Or, or else that you kind of go, oh, well, that, well, it, someone else is in charge of that and that surely that's in hand, right? And that people well, are no, simply, but aren't, there's a culture of back, Arthur, people, are, so, who are, people who are not interrogating at the level that they should be. Yeah, so if there's a statement, for example, last night, that there was a pushback against this commercial arrangement then why were the questions not asked by whoever was pushing back or were they um, at or, the or end about what actually happened in the end? Or, or was the, the pushback, as described and not explained, was, is that simply code for saying, look, we were really, really reluctant to do this. We didn't want to do it at all. Uh, some people felt we shouldn't, but we ended up with no choice and the D4 statement, we never thought we'd actually have to come good on the guarantee anyway. Was that the pushback? We don't know. And then also the 2017 to 2020 is nothing to do with this tripartite relationship. You know, that's been pushed back for another four weeks. And how do we, are we sure that there wasn't anything prior to 2017? Well, I mean, it, I mean, but the, the look back is going to go until 2008, Catherine Martin mm-hmm. told me yesterday. Yeah. And given the ease with which this arrangement was entered into, and it suggests in the Grant Thornton report that the idea came from the RTE side, then I would be surprised, and I, I have no knowledge of this, but it, it would be amazing if this was just a, a, an entirely once-off thing that was never uh, employed before. But we don't know that. Um, we, we'll have to wait until find out. But there's another point that I, I wanted to ask you about uh, on it, and that it, it's this whole idea of the talent, the top stars in RTE that occupy, that are on a different level uh, to everybody else, not just in terms of their salaries, maybe that's to be uh, expected, but in the whole way that they are 
treated by the organize by the organization. And I wonder if that has turned out to be a healthy thing for the organization. Yeah, no, actually, like I think that's you know one of the things that's at the heart of this is the differences between the commercial and the public service remit and where these get intertwined and where they get mistaken. And this kind of, you know, face of the board where on the one hand things are commercial sens- commercially sensitive and can't be revealed and on the other hand it's a public service organisation that has at, at its heart the, the needs of the, the Irish citizenry. And other media organisations have this. You know, the Irish Times had what used to be called like a million years ago was kind of, was it church and state? Church and state. You know, where you had... Just explain the, that people, the separation of church and state being the separation of commercial from... Uh, editorial. Yeah. So if you have um, a star in the Irish Times, I don't know, Pat, would it be, would it be yourself and Arthur? Or I, I, I would, think would, would probably would be, be one, 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 one or, or possibly both of us. Or possibly both. And, you know, maybe Finton or somebody. Ah. So, no. Well, I'm implausible to deniability about this, right? Okay. <laughs> but, you know, you're all actually paid as staff in here. You're not self-employed companies doing deals with the commercial side. So, you know, if there's an advertorial in the in the Irish Times, that's the business of the commercial side. And it doesn't actually enter in to, well, what actually gets covered by uh, news or current affairs or other parts. Whereas in RTE, it seems to me that there's been this kind of overlap and mix up and lack of clarity about the difference between the public service remit and the commercial requirements. And I wonder whether, we, you know, in fact, it's yes about kind of the the talent and the way that those contracts are negotiated. But I wonder, is it also even further about what do we actually need to think about, you know, an entirely different remit for RT as a public service broadcaster that doesn't actually have that commercial part of it? You know, is that is that is that just though? the way that broadcasting is structured? Because it's not, you know, it, it's not just RTE in its broadcasting terms that, uh, in broadcasting terms, that, 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 that operates this idea model. of, yeah. no, 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 I'm talking about this idea of the talent oh, that yeah. has very small number of uh, people who go on to be, by virtue of the job they're doing, go on to be very well known, very well paid, they have this huge public profile, they're the face of the, uh, the organisation. I mean, that's not unique to or or to ye, no. or is it possible to do a sort of public service broadcasting without that? Well, I don't know, but it should be interesting to try and to understand. You know, there hasn't been after the the uh, cutbacks, there haven't been that many of the very top people who are very well paid who've actually left to go to other um, commercial well, I mean, broadcasters. Hasn't there only been ever one, really? There's only Pat one, Kenny really. Went, and yeah. so where are the others actually going to go? I, th- I think one of my colleagues looked at it and said that uh, Tubbs would actually have been the fifth highest paid uh, person in the entire BBC, you know, under the likes of kind of Gary Lineker and so on, which is... Uh, so, you know, was the BBC going to recruit... Tabaji to be its fifth highest paying star? I mean, maybe maybe it was. Maybe that was a factor in the yeah. negotiation. Uh, I, I guess we don't know. But it seems we've told. We certainly haven't been told. True. And, but, uh, well, what the D4 statement said that they were concerned to retain his services. But 
We don't know if there was a counteroffer on the table. We don't know if he was threatening to walk. We don't know any of that. because Well, he must have had some leverage, right? Because they're prepared to go to these extraordinary lengths. The world has changed. The world has changed, right? You can, you can, you can no longer have a public institution uh, with a very highly paid broadcasters and you, you can no longer function in a scenario where their pay is not going to be published. That's why you have yeah, but such RT, concerns RT about knows this. that. Yeah, this is the it point. RT knows that. It, publish, is, it publishes this, their pay. It just didn't publish the, the, the extra bits. This is why you have the outcry. Yeah. This is why you have the it's outcry. It's because it's going back to what yeah. we spoke about at the beginning. The mission it's is the to tell the truth. the intent to deceive well, the concealment, that I think is the thing that... The and the concealment. The concealment. And right? trust has to be at the heart of the relationship. So it has to be about rebuilding trust with the, with the public. We're going to take a break. When we come back, um, I want to talk a bit more about that that relationship of trust and also about the relationship that RTE has with politics. So stay with There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Jane, we spoke before the break just about how Trusted uh, had been damaged. Um, how does RT go about rebuilding that trust? Yeah, well, trust is something that takes a long time to build and is very easy to break, as, you know, RTE have seen. And I think that really um, the, you know, the the ordinary researchers, producers, presenters, correspondents who were out protesting, I think they've been doing their best to rebuild trust. You know, they've been out, they've been asking questions, they've been trying to hold their executive board to account They've been doing all all they can. But I think the board itself has not covered itself in glory. I think that, you know, they obviously need to be a lot more transparent, um, a lot less about um, trying to protect the, themselves. I think there's a thing that there's a there could be a perception out there in the public that uh, RTE and the um, the executives in, in charge of it are kind of a a quasi-civil service institution that are more about protecting their own than about representing the needs and uh, the requirements of the Irish public, which is what the remit of a public service broadcaster has to be. So I think they have to put their own needs, their own sense of needing to protect themselves aside, and they need to think about, well, how do we actually project the image of a trustworthy public service broadcaster. And that needs to be the thing that's front and centre in their heads rather than any element of self-protection. Before, it used to be about protecting the institution as it was, which was like some sort of 20th century ocean liner that was 
taking forever to turn into the new realities of the 21st century. So, but I think they need to, that's what they need to do is to actually think, well, what do we need to do as those people who are really well paid to be in charge of public sector broadcasting in uh, Ireland or public service broadcasting in Ireland, I should say. Uh, the, the the relationship, Arthur, between RTE and politics is is kind of complicated. I guess it operates on on two levels. There's the you know the daily sort of kinetic relationship between politicians and the government of the day, and uh, and RTE and and I mean I'm sure you know them as well. But some ministers would believe who've served in this government and and, and in past governments, you know, they really do believe that RTE set out to unfairly undermine those Crush them. governments. Yeah, I mean, you hear that all the time from ministers who were part of the Fine Gael Labour coalition during the period of austerity from 2011, 2016. I mean, like they really believe that they were screwed over by RTE, particularly with RTE's coverage of the water charges uh, pro protests uh, in that. And, you know, Fianna Fáil has very often had a sort of persecution complex about uh, about RTE. Um, but then there's also, uh, on a more kind of general level, then there's the, there's the corporate level. There's the relationship between RTE and the government with, you know, RTE subject to government decisions about its funding. And we know that you know, since forever, but especially in the last number of years, RTE has been warning the government that it must have more money uh, or it cannot do uh, its job. Now, that process has been uh, has been stalled. But it's, it's, it's a relationship that is rife with conflicts. Uh, well, like, ne- necessarily, right? Necessarily. You can't have a national broadcaster that um, a, that is a source of comfort for the government sure. or the opposition, I mean, right? That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. And, I, you know, I describe it almost like that if you're, you know, you can't have two football teams or two hurling teams in a big match in Crow Park and the two sides are, they're afraid to play. And that it's really, like, it's really dreadful. So the, the conflict is inevitable and conflict is necessary when it comes to uh, the engagement between a broadcaster, a national broadcaster, and the powers that be on a day-by-day basis. But in the in the Irish situation, you also have this a huge power that the government has because the government has control over the licence fee, yeah. the setting of the licence fee, how that fee is collected, and it has control to do something about the very high level, or the the loss of significant millions every single year from people who are not paying the license fee, and this is it's a not real. Get any easier to no, get no, 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 most definitely not. Now, but anyway, but, that's but an this aside. is but this is a, a this is a problem which has snowballed in recent years for RTE, and this is why this entire issue makes it so difficult now because this bursts into the open at a time when it's hoping to be making progress on it's what has been a very long campaign for more public funding to do the very difficult work which needs to be done by any public service broadcaster. So this thing is a, is, a, is a contaminant on the whole thing. Isn't this the point, Jane, that the, like, the, the necessary and perfectly healthy friction 
at one level of the relationship in the coverage of, of, of politics and coverage of, of what the government is doing bleeds into that corporate relationship between RT and, uh, and the government when it, uh, when it comes to Absolutely. funding. Absolutely. And as a result, successive governments actually have some element of responsibility for the difficulties that RT finds itself in and, you know, the, you know, where it has to go with kind of commercial revenues to try to shore things up. Because, you know, even if Ryan Turbergy, uh wasn't paid at all um, and the top stars weren't paid, RT would still be in a really substantial shortfall. So it's not as if the, you know, the actual salary levels are the thing that's making the difference to money. And this, so there is this thing with the government where they seem to kind of take it sort of personally in some ways. And no matter what model you have globally, there's always this element of friction. Of course, there is. But also uh, public service media is under um, attack globally. Like you, you see, you know, the level of attack of the BBC from the from the Tories and, and so on in, in the UK. So it's something that's actually in, in the sights of, uh, of yes, some people. And there's trade-offs with all of these different things. And I think it's really notable that the government set up the Future of Media Commission and its one serious recommendation was reform of the licence fee and to put it under a kind of a more sustainable five-year funding model. Well, so, they wanted direct exchequer funding, yeah, didn't they? D- yeah, direct exchequer funding that would be done for five years and therefore you could actually make plans because you know what kind of money you're going to be getting in. And the one thing the government didn't do was that. And now the one thing they're saying they won't do is that. So... You know, they're holding RT you know, to account I've, I've and they're also withholding money. I've, I've discussed that decision with ministers in recent days mm. and their, uh, their take on it is very much, well, weren't we right? Look at what RTE does with its money. But the weren't problem we dead is right? that if you have uh, public service media, it's um, you know, the research would show that like good, strong uh, public media is actually associated with the health of a democracy it's actually associated with less dissemination of disinformation. You know, it's a it's a public good in all sorts of other ways. So for the politicians to kind of think of it as a tit for tat kind of relationship is not very mature and um, is not very healthy. And I think that they need to be able to to move beyond that and actually become the grown ups in the room. They also, though, you talk to politicians about this relationship with RTE and they often say privately that they find RTE at a corporate level arrogant, dismissive, entitled. They feel they're being told, the politi- this is the politicians uh, say this, they, they, they say they feel they're being told, you know, you guys just give us the money uh, and, and shut up. And then they go on and they relay kind of a catalogue of editorial errors. Nothing to do with, you know, Tuberty or anything like that, but editorial errors, including possibly deciding the... 2011 presidential election by reading out a fake tweet, which in fairness was one mistake. But, you know, RTE's editorial standards are not above questioning either. No, but they can't, you can't actually have, you know, like if you accept that you need good public media 
and that there's a requirement uh, for the Irish public to have it and that it's an important element of of our uh, democracy, then you need to be able to move beyond the tit for the hat about editorial decision making. That I think the report actually found it was somebody relatively junior made a mistake and then it wasn't picked up. It was in a very, you know, you guys understand that the Irish Times has made occasional mistakes, probably being involved in them myself, you know. So... um, you know, these, course, these, these, these things happen. Mistakes are inevitable. They're, they're inevitable. It's how you deal with them. And for it, it just reminds me of kind of, you know, uh, two teenagers bickering. You know what I mean? Where you have some sort of backwards and forwards. I think that, you know, really we need to be able to look and see what is actually important, what's important for democracy, what's important for the way we run the country, how are we going to fund it, and then how are we going to ensure proper real accountability for that funding. Arthur? But to go back to the original question, you ask how can trust be re-established, right? Trust can only be re-established if you have truth about what went on here. And it's only when you have a thoroughgoing accounting of what went wrong, who was responsible, who should have acted if they didn't, what omissions were made. It's only if you have all of that set out that you can begin to rebuild trust and then that you can have the basis for a a grown-up conversation around what's going to be the future for this very important institution. I mean, I, I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly with Jane. I mean, you cannot have you can't have democracy if you don't have truthful journalism. I mean, it's, it's sure, a, it's, but Dorothy is hardly the only repository. No, of truthful no, no, journalism. no, no. But it's still, I mean, but it's, it's still, an important part of it. It's a very mm-hmm. important part of it. And you know, where where you don't have a decent public service broadcaster. Well, then it becomes very, very easy for whoever's in power or whoever wants to uh, to be in power to gloss over the uh, the things that they wouldn't uh, like people reporting on. True, but I mean, I don't think we should fall into the trap either of saying just because RTE does something that it's there for public service broadcasting. It seems to me that it spends an awful lot of its time and resources. Well, this is the problem with the two-faced thing about the kind of... You know, like, why was there a commercial organisation sponsoring somebody who's a quasi-current affairs presenter? You know what I mean? So, well, I mean, Ryan, Ryan Tuberty yeah. has, has, has interviewed the Taoiseach yeah. on television, right? Yeah. The Taoiseach of the day, right? Okay. So this is, not, this is not mere entertainment. No. It's more than that. And the Late Late Show programme that, uh, that he was presenter, where, where he was presenter for many, many years, this is not... Mere entertainment. That's the nature of the thing. Yeah. It's the the unique thing about the Late Late Show. It's Mm. not the Graham Norton show, you know. So um, Ortiz needs to think really carefully about, like, where are those lines between public service and commercial? Who's going to do that thinking now? Because it seems to me you have an entire leadership, both at the executive and at uh, at the board level, that is at least under a very large question mark as yeah. to its future. And the other thing about it is, and we touched on it earlier, is that in the real world, there isn't going to be any fresh money for RTE for quite some time, no. it seems to me. And RTE was telling everybody who would listen, also telling the government that they were in a financial crisis, an acute financial crisis. Now, that financial crisis isn't going to go away just because the, the leadership is, uh, is, is under pressure. It's a very difficult time ahead, I think. Oh, it's for a the- very difficult time ahead. And, you know, you really need to look at, like, obviously, there's a new chairman in, in soon. She's got her job uh, cut out for her. 
Um, I don't know. Like, there's obviously a new uh, DG coming in. Well, a new old DG. He was acting DG in 2016. Um, so, you know, where are where is the, the vision for this? But I think that's clearly where their uh, energy and attention of themselves and of the the minister has to be. But you can only you can only you can only grapple with that when you've given a full and truthful account of what exactly went on in this thing. Oh, well, Do you absolutely. think that's likely to happen in the coming days? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I've for many, many years reported on uh, Dáil committees, Oireachtas committees. Um, they, when they're good, they can be very good. If you have uh, precision questioning, if you but have speech making from Grant politicians, it's not... But the fact that the new Grant Thornton has been, you know, the kind of prior to 2021 has been pushed out for, oh, for four, four weeks. weeks. Yes, like that smacks of you know hoping that the rolling headlines will have, will have gone, the attention will have moved on. Well, but if four, four, four weeks takes us to uh, the end of uh, July and into the fallow news period of August. So it's very possible that there'll be nothing else going on, and that the the only thing that anyone's going to be talking about is what was going on in uh, in, in Ryan Tuberty's pay. In 2017 to 19. It's a story made for August, really, <laughs> isn't it? I'm sure we'll come back to it before then. Pat's rubbing his hands together. <laughs> <laughs> I shall be in Kerry in West Cork, I hope, <laughs> during, uh, during August. Well, we will return to this before August, uh, I'm sure. Um, but for now, that will do us. My thanks to Arthur Beasley and to Jane Souter. Today's episode was produced by John Casey with JJ Vernon on sound. And do remember, you can subscribe to the Irish Times at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.